Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about TV criticism with two freelance writers who are joining us today. Heather Mason, who is a contributor to Sci-Fi Fine Girls, IGN Hello Giggles, and Amy Poehler Smart Girls, and Latoya Ferguson of the AV Club, IndieWire, and Uprox. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> For our Paper Scraps segment, we wanted to remind everyone that WonderCon will be this Sunday, the 25th of March, and that Alex and I have a panel coming up there, 1 o'clock this Sunday in room 209. It's called Reimagined for TV, Writing Shows Based on Popular IP. The description is, from books to comics and movies, it seems that all your favorite TV shows are adaptations of existing properties, but writing a fresh story within well-known worlds poses its own set of challenges. How can writers stay true to established material while putting their own spin on it? Why do certain properties make for great TV? From writers to producers to executives, Alex Friedman and Nick Watson, Paper Team, assemble an all-star panel of people who work on your favorite TV series to discuss adapting IPs to the small screen. Yeah, it's just going to be us, right? We're the all-star panel. (laughs) No, if you come in on this Sunday, you'll uh, find our panelists that include Britta Lundin from Riverdale, Kai Wu from The Flash, Hannibal, Ray Utanachit from DC's Legends of Tomorrow, and Colleen McAllister from Hasbro, who's produced My Little Pony and The Littlest Pet Shop. And we'll have maybe more yet-to-be-announced super secret guests. Hopefully someone from my own show. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. So I hope we can see you all there. And now, on with the show. All right, so to start off, how did you each get into TV criticism? Well, I started, uh, I kind of started doing my own TV criticism, I guess, when I was in college and I had some extra time and wanted to just talk about things I love. And so I I started my own website called the TV sisters with my sister. And we just kind of talked about different things we liked through videos and just, you know, writing about our thoughts about shows. And then um, when I moved to LA, I had some free time. And I did the same thing. And then uh, eventually I started writing for geek and sundry about various things like TV shows, movies, games. And um, it kind of, I guess, started from there. Like that was when I started getting actually paid to write about stuff, which was really cool. Um, For me, uh, I had started writing uh, on Blogspot about TV and writing when I was like in high school, beginning of college. I actually met Alex that way, sort of, Mm -hmm. uh, through my my Blogspot days. And during college, uh, I was blogging on, on the Tumblr, you know, and a lot about a lot of it was um, writing about TV, whether it was some snarky stuff or whatever. Mm-hmm. I eventually um, started writing about TV for, specifically for a blog that I created called All the TV on Tumblr. And it was based with a bunch of other people who I met on Tumblr, became really close friends. And one of those friends who I wrote with, she eventually went on to write for the AV Club. She uh, she did that way before I did. And eventually they were looking for new writers and she suggested me as one of the writers. And, you know, I said in my material, I was actually feeling really down at that part because I'd been writing, you know, for free uh, about TV for quite a while. Uh, I had finally applied to Television Without Pity to be a writer. And I did like my samples and everything. I thought it was going to go great. I did not get the job. I was very, very crushed. I was honestly <laughs> willing to stop writing about TV at that point. Like really depressed. Little did I know they were about to close. Actually, mm-hmm. that, that was the actual reason for it. But at the time, I didn't know this. They didn't hire you, so of course they closed <laughs> down. They closed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that was the actual reason they, they weren't going to hire anyone. Because <laughs> I'm like, it's going very well, right? And then no. But then like a month later, it's like, yeah, we're closing. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense anyway. 
Um, although I did get the dissolve killed when I got hired by it later in, in the world. So uh, I'm just a curse of a plague on your house. Um, hire her now. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody hiring right this second? <laughs> I'm a plague on your house. So I, I did my applying, even though I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm tired. I hate everything. And I, and I got the gig at the AV Club. And the rest was kind of history because after like my first review with AV Club, people was like, oh, I didn't know you could write like this. I'm like, well, thanks. <laughs> what am I supposed to say Wait, about that, this? Was that freelance? Yeah, it was okay. freelance. Uh, so I then got a gig at a new vertical at the time for Gawker, RIP. And it, that was pretty good. And I, I got other writing gigs based on that. But it was a lot of writing for no money whatsoever and for an audience of like 10 people. And then eventually writing for little money and more than 10 people at least. Yeah. I feel like that's common. Yeah. How people start. Yeah. A lot of blogging into the void for sure. (laughs) So how would you define TV criticism now in the era of the little tweet, the little snap, uh, the little uh, message board? Nobody uses message boards now, but uh, you know what I mean. RIP the IMDb message boards, which were garbage, but they were like fun garbage to read. There was some good stuff. Um, like I said, I started a lot with just bl- uh, blogging, whether it was on Blogspot or Tumblr was, was the eventual thing. It's And there's a lot of live tweeting now. I, I, I love a good live tweet, honestly. I appreciate that. And in a lot of ways, if it's a good live tweet, it can, you know, it can, it can lead places, honestly. Uh, a, live, I, a live tweet, just to clarify, of you watching a show, correct? Yes. Not the writers or the... Yeah. Referring to that. You yourself writing a show and putting your own little spin on commentary. Although there can be some just really bad live tweeting, which... I think I did a lot of uh, what you would call live tweeting on Tumblr too before I started like just doing actual criticism there where I would just be like, well, I'm watching this thing at 2 a.m. because I'm an insomniac, so I'm going to just uh, <laughs> post numerous things about it. That, I don't know why anyone likes me. Jesus. Um, so, yeah, uh, Snapchat, I couldn't tell you anything about, uh, but um, I think it's good, but it can also be very bad in a lot of ways. Also, you know, your commentary could be seen by people who are involved with the show. It can be good in some ways. It can be awful in a, in a, in a lot of ways. I meant more in the sense of if you have a think piece or mm-hmm. a platform like the AV Club or Uproxx mm-hmm. or any of those other websites, and you can dig deeper into your thoughts of a show versus social media mm-hmm. that's only going to be 160 plus characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you feel the that TV criticism is different in those platforms? A lot of uh, life it's, it's just your instant opinion. Um, TV criticism, you're able to at least mull it over a little bit more. Even if you're watching Night of, you still you're th- you have to think deep about this. You can't just be like, "Well, I have my few words," and like, boom, that's it. You have to actually have an actual analysis of the entire show, the like the writing, the directing, everything. I think in a way, though, social media can be a good supplement. Like, uh, I just wrote a, a review where I, I wrote like this two thousand word review. But and there were still some additional things I wanted to add that just like supplemental things. So I added them on Twitter after I um, announced my review. So I personally like the two working in concert. I don't want to do like this versus that, you know? Yeah, I was going to say um, we I've had things where people kind of go on like rants on social media that uh, like where it could it could be a really good think piece individually. And so I think. You know, the instinct is to go on social media and be really like, I'm angry at this thing that's happening. But really, you could you could harness that better into a more, like a more well thought out think piece. And so sometimes the instinct is to go on on social media and just start t- talking about it. And also, like, you're not getting paid for that. So in my mind, like, <laughs> like social media is just an, like you said, a supplemental 
part of it. And if you really, you know, want to have like, if you're writing a review or if you have deeper thoughts, I don't think if it's going to be more than like two tweets, like maybe make that into like an entire piece where you can really, really like have it well thought out. And if you, if you get screeners of things, it's a lot easier to do that. If you, if you don't have screeners, you kind of do have to like on the fly, you're watching it and you're trying to like come up with some ideas as well. So I think um, like Latoya said, it's it's better it's best if they work in concert with each other. I don't think that needs like separate necessarily doesn't work as well. And I'll also add, uh, especially upon becoming a professional TV critic, I found myself you know live tweeting a lot less because like these are ideas I w- I want to put like in a piece basically. And while it's it's good again, like you were saying, just to get the attention to get like a little thing out, like if you can get a bigger piece that so you can get your ideas focused, which you can't really do in a live tweet because you're going like bump, bump, bump. And after the fact, you can maybe think clearer, like just a knee jerk reaction to something is never good. And again, I'm not saying that a live tweet is bad. <laughs> <laughs> It can be bad. It's really hard to pay attention when you're live tweeting. Like when I live tweet, I try to also make gifts, which is just like a whole nother thing. It's like I lose a lot of like me, like critically looking at something. I'm just trying to be like, this gif looks great. This this (laughs) Scully gif is special. People are going to love this. Yeah. People love this bughead gif. (laughs) So it's already easy to get distracted. Mm -hmm. And so if you're trying to tweet things out in addition to Mm -hmm. thinking critically, I, I think it's kind of difficult yeah live, live tweeting is only bad if you're the president otherwise uh that's not good <laughs> but, um, yeah thank you uh, but to that earlier point of getting screeners and so forth can you walk us through sort of the timeline of when you guys receive screeners versus the air date if that happens and that process of reviewing those samples screeners isn't the thing that's always guaranteed which can be really frustrating at times when i first started basically uh, my editors were able to give me like access to the screeners and eventually it led to like me getting my own access on the very screener websites i'm really bad about procrastinating on screeners though because there's just so much tv boohoo um (laughs) but there's usually a pretty good amount of time before the show actually airs unless it's like a weekly show that's already established uh because sometimes it's like i review lucifer that's one of the shows i review and i literally got a screener i didn't think it was gonna be a screener i got it the day the episode aired which was that's just ridiculous it's not it's not the norm but it, it happened you know or there's also screeners from Netflix, which I'm currently in a fight with right now because they never send me screeners anymore. They just stopped. Mm. Yeah, I don't really get I don't I don't get that many screeners. Um, but the ones that I have gotten for like pilots and stuff, it's pr- it's a lot of time. Like I like the ones I've I've done it. It is like a like a pretty significant amount of time. Um, but a lot of them have temp stuff. So it's like, imagine this picture being here, but it's not actually there, which can be kind of fun. Um, <laughs> but also, yeah, I, I know like I'm in some groups with like other freelance writers and people will always be kind of trying to talk to each other about like, well, this these people are good at screeners. These people are bad at screeners. This person never responded to me. This person, you know, people like working together because there seems to be kind of different like there doesn't seem to be a standard, basically. <laughs> I have been appreciating. There's a lot, especially with comedies. I, I feel there's been a, an influx lately of them like providing either the entire season in screener form, like pretty early, or like at least half of the season, which is really helpful. Yeah, I, I reviewed Great News for the first season for IGN, and yeah, I got the whole the whole season at once, which was, I mean, overwhelming, but also nice because I just sat and watched the whole thing. I got the DVD too, and I was so happy, and I fell in love with the show. And then I was just like, "Why is no one else falling in love with the show?" I just watched it all. Yeah, I know. I was like, "Wait, I watched this entire show. No one else has seen it." 
You'll be able to comment on this for years. <laughs> oh, one more screener thing, which was screeners, though, can be very hard, especially when like you really love something and you have to hold it in. Because when I was still getting Netflix screeners, I got um, a screener for San Junipero. And so I watched that in July, and the show didn't come out till like December that year, right? Yeah, I think so. It was yeah. a while. Oh, wow. So I would had to hold that in fr- from the summer <laughs> of that year wow. to the end. And I was just like, this is the best thing in the world. I can't talk to anyone about this. Yeah, I watched I watched the first five episodes of The X-Files season 11 pretty early. And so then I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I can't, yeah. I can't warn people about this. <laughs> and, and also, like, I couldn't. Like, that was, I was like, wow, I'm halfway through the, the last season. Like, oh, I don't like that. Uh... <laughs> I've already watched five of the ten. What? What am I going to do? So how do you go about navigating TV criticism in this era of peak TV? Like, how do you figure out how to cover everything or what you want to cover? Or how does it all work? I'm lucky enough that I'm just a weirdo with, like, niche tastes in television. So it helps a lot for me pitching shows because literally no one else is watching them or no one else cares. But it hurts me because no one else is watching them. So that means no clicks, which means usually the pitches don't go 100%. Yeah, I would say like mostly I've been doing stuff for Sci-Fi Wire. um, So I really try to focus on genre stuff just because I feel like that's the stuff I'm going to end up writing about for them. And I just try to I want to be as knowledgeable as possible so that when someone asks me if I watch it, then I can say yes Mm -hmm. and be like, oh, yes. Or, you know, especially I cover conventions for them, too. And it helps if you kind of have a general idea of everything that they cover, um, which is really hard right now, obviously, because we have a lot of genre stuff. But that's kind of where I try to focus my energy, unless it's like my other one is like random true crime stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, who can I pitch this to? Yeah, one thing that just drives me crazy, both as a critic and just as a fan of TV, is like, for me, I always want to at least have a base knowledge of every show, even if I'm not watching it full time. And there's so many people who do not do that, yet they want to give their opinion or their, their criticism and that that's always just driven me crazy. But again, I don't sleep. So that's, that helps me a lot with watching TV. Is it necessary to like the show if you want to cover it? Or is it better to be neutral about it? Or can you even cover a show that you kind of hate? I don't even know if it's better or worse, really, to like or hate a show. I usually pitch a show that I want to cover just because I'm interested in it or something. And sometimes it ends up that I, I will hate the show, which can give some really good hate reviews. But like, <laughs> I'm not doing this like I'm going to pitch a show I'm definitely going to hate. Uh, it's a lot of a lot of times I pitch shows that I'm like, oh, this is perfect for me. And people like my colleagues who, in theory, were kind of competing against each other as other freelancers. They're like, well, this show is perfect for Latoyo. Why would anyone else pitch it, basically? And I'll get that show, and then it will be Scream the TV series, and then <laughs> <laughs> I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> it's your first F. A lot of it too, if you like really love a show and you, you get to cover it, because you can't just pra- praise it endlessly. Obviously, you have to again, you have to look at this with like, your critical eye. Uh, I cover Riverdale. I love the first season. I've gotten people saying, "Oh, well, you know, critics just love a reason to hate something." With you know, season two, it's like, no, we 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 want to like what we're watching because it's. I don't think anyone goes out of their way being like, I really hope I hate this show. Like, No, I wouldn't. I, I find it so much easier to write about things I like. So mm-hmm. if I just want to like everything, honestly, I prefer I prefer that, especially if I'm like spending a bunch of time on something. Yeah, there surely are a few people uh, I, I, that I don't read anyway, who going to a thing like, I really hope I hate this so I can like really take it down. But that's not the norm. You want to like the show that you're going to review because this is your job. This is something you love. You care about television. This is something you love. You want to see a good, successful product. 
And it's, it's actually kind of, it can be really disappointing, especially for certain things when it's not as good or if, if it's just flat out awful. And at what point do you stop watching something if it's just not good? Well, I brought up Scream the TV series. I did the entire first season and I could I could have kept reviewing it, but I quit. Just like this is isn't going to help me. It's not going to help the show. Basically, I gave my like my opinion on the story, and the first season was so self contained. It's not like if I don't do season two, I'm going to miss out so much. It really varies because I I also review professional wrestling, and the show I currently review right now it has a lot of ups and downs and a, a lot of downs, and like the past. <laughs> Oh, I'll, 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 Mike, I'll tell you about this promotion because you would not believe, literally, <laughs> wrestling fans themselves don't believe the things with this promotion. And, like, it, the last two weeks weren't even, like, necessarily bad in terms of the, like, the show, but they were just so, it's got to the point where it's, like, so disconcerting that, like, a show keeps making the same mistakes. Like, I was just so burnt out and, and like, I was upset and technically I wanted to quit, but, like, I knew I could not quit because it's just one of the rough patches so the things, so you can know if like a show like you just really you couldn't do it like for your well being it's gonna like it's gonna kill you, <laughs> or if a show's story is ended you know and you don't need to keep going on with it it's a good thing. I try not to quit reviews. I don't quit shows too often. I do it more than I used to though. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm a I'm I'm a completionist. I have a really hard time. C- quitting shows yeah especially mid-season i like to finish out seasons Mm -hmm. and if and and i won't even like quit it i'll just go back to it later just be like maybe i need to take a year off (laughs) yeah and then go back if i'm gonna quit a show i will at least wait till the the season is over to do it i used to like not quit shows at all and that was a problem because i was watching really terrible shows and this was pre-professional critic though so I, i had more time well, as as a professional critic, do you feel that you need to finish a show that you're reviewing? Yeah, for the most part. Like, um, the two shows I was te- kind of reviewing that I quit, so I didn't fin- finish them off, were... But there were both shows I had to push really hard to cover on Navy Club, Teen Wolf and Pretty Little Liars. And Pretty Little Liars, I didn't do weekly, but, like, I would check in for the mid-season finales and, fin- like, the regular finales for the show. So that's, that's all I had to review, but I was still watching the show. And after, like, the big A reveal they did, I reviewed it. I was like, this is a fine episode, and I wrote everything. But, like, it got into a few episodes into the next season, and I'm just like, they should have just ended it, basically. Uh, so I just stopped watching the show, and so I didn't go back to review it for the end. Teen Wolf, though, which was a show I pushed very, very hard to cover, and I covered the rest of the episodes, like, weekly, it got to a point where it was just so bad, and it made no sense that I got to a, the, like the mid-season finale for the season I did, and I'm just like, I can't do this anymore because <laughs> I'm just upset on everyone's behalf, <laughs> least of all mine, honestly. I don't do like a ton of reviews. I don't feel like that obligation to anything. Most of the reviews I've done are like pilot reviews and stuff, or like an entire season at once. So then it's easy for me to be like, I have to finish this. Um, but I've done some like live tweeting stuff and and stuff like that. And mostly I. I mostly finish everything. I don't I don't know if it's like an obligation or if it is that like tendency I have to have to complete everything. I don't even know what would be so bad that I couldn't finish watching it. I can't think of anything that was that bad that that's made it to television. Yeah, it's it's, it's one of those things again, even though I'm better about just not watching a show, I'm it still takes a lot for me to actually quit a show. Again, like Team Wolf and Prelogs, those were deep into their runs where I'm just finally like I've, I've had enough. The only other shows that I've like covered regularly that I quit 
And again, these are both shows where it's like, oh, this is the obvious show for me to cover, and that, that was basically the pitch, or Scream Queens, which was, yeah, the, I did the first season, and that, again, works because it's an anthology, so, like, one season, yeah. Because I, I quit uh, that one after the first season, because, like, no one thought I was going to come back, because its ratings were yeah. abysmal, and it came back, and its ratings were more abysmal, <laughs> and it got canceled. And The Strain, which was upsetting to me in a way that wasn't even the kind of the fun way of Scream Queens. It was like one of those things where everyone involved in this is not being given anything like substantial to do. And I can't really write as much about like, if there's nothing there to write about really, what am I supposed to write about? I mean, you could write an entire think piece about Corey Stroll's hairpiece though. I I, I started writing a lot about that because there was really, I, I had, I was grasping at like at uh, strands basically that was a good one. Right. <laughs> but so, that was a good one. <laughs> uh, how much of an impact do you think reviews have on a show's survival? And how do you deal with the kind of divide between maybe popular acclaim versus critical acclaim for shows? I mean, you can have both, I, I, I believe. I Again, I review a lot of shows that aren't necessarily like... I, I'm, not re- I'm never going to be reviewing Game of Thrones or Walking Dead or Westworld or anything like those big shows anyway. But you can be relatively popular com- compared to those and still have like critical acclaim. I think it's, uh, people want to know that the show that they like is seen as a good show. Of course, they're going to say, oh, I hate critics. And I don't care about critics if their shows are getting like slammed on. But they want it. They kind of they want the validation, you know? Yeah, I would I would say I don't know if it has any impact like num like numbers wise like mm-hmm. i kind of think people are going to watch what they want to watch mm-hmm. and then you know maybe it could have an impact on them thinking about something in a different way in the show but i don't necessarily think that like oh you know this is really well reviewed like i'm gonna all of a sudden maybe i mean maybe people start watching mm-hmm. stuff because of that but i don't know if they would be like oh this is terrible that like the critics say it's terrible so i'm gonna stop watching like i don't know if, if people would have that i guess i think of it in kind of a similar way as like awards where mm-hmm. If, if something's getting awards, more people are like, oh, I should check that out because it's getting awards and people seem to like it. Like if I see a bunch of people tweeting about the same show online, I'm like, oh, you know, or if all these reviews keep coming out that are all say it, it's more like a in general, like if if the mass seems to be going positive, then that's positive. But if they seem to be going negative, then I'm like, maybe I can put this off for longer. Yeah, it's also one of those things where, like, in my mind, even before, like, this is what I was doing for a living, I like, I always thought, I want to know if the critics, like, they have the same ideas as me. If I'm watching a show and I'm thinking this idea and I don't have anyone to talk to about it, then I want to have the validation kind of, not just, like, in fandom, but just, I just want to make sure I'm, kind of, I'm not crazy when I'm seeing this particular thing and to see it, like, that, I, that I'm right in a review or even just in an interview with, like, a critic, that helps a lot. But I'm not saying that a great review is going to make a show like the biggest show in the world. Although this has got pretty great reviews and they'll look at it. So, yeah, that's true. (laughs) To that point of general criticism and general perception, what are your thoughts on aggregators like IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic? I personally use Metacritic to see sort of the, the pulse on what that movie or that show is seen as either positive or negative. On our show, I know that that was a, a big question of where we would fall on that Metacritic scale. I, I'm wondering on your side of things, sort of your thoughts on that. 
I know there's there. I feel like there are issues with aggregators. Like when whenever there was like all those great reviews for Lady Bird, and that one dude was like not <laughs> like not. like I think maybe <laughs> I think maybe there can be issues with that. Like people seeing everything being positive and being like or or negative and just be like I must be this person who is 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 not going with the flow. But in general, I don't I don't I think that's good that there's a place where people can go and see a lot of different opinions in one place because again unless you follow certain writers on certain sites you might not be able to get that like difference of opinion and i think getting different opinions in general and like life is important so maybe if you go on maybe if you go on <laughs> metacritic and you see people that you know you wouldn't have normally stumbled upon in some way like aggregators can help in that way well, how accurate is usually that score, especially because there's such a difference between Rotten Tomatoes that's mostly the fresh versus uh, Rotten rating, which doesn't really determine where you are on the scale of, you know, if it's something that's 6 out of 10, that's going to be fresh. But if it's something that's 4 out of 10, that's going to be rotten. But and I get what you're saying. Um, well, uh, first of all, I just want to say uh, I'm pro aggregator, except for in uh, the case of IMDb. Because I feel like their ratings are trash all the time. <laughs> um, I it's once, IMDb, so. <laughs> I once got into a Facebook disagreement with a person who was like on my friend's Facebook talking about how... Uh, so we were talking... I don't even remember the movie, but it was like a really good movie. But And he's like, well... <laughs> IMDb only gave out like a like a fifty percent or something, and I only get my ratings from IMDb. And we're like, oh no! If you're gonna if you're gonna use an aggregator, don't use IMDb. And he would not be deterred. So he he missed out on this really great movie because IMDb told him not to. So that's a problem. My biggest problem, especially with um, I don't really do Metacritic that much, but Rotten Tomatoes I used to go to, especially um, in the aughts and before. A lot of the criticism, of course, would come from older white men, and that would really be detrimental to female-led films, you know. Uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous, I would say, is a great film. Yes, it's wonderful. It has like a 40% on Rotten Tomatoes or possibly lower, and all I could read, like I was reading the things, and I'm like, this makes no sense. It, it's one of those things where you look at this and you're like, oh, it's a sign of the times, but like that, it's stuck with that review. Because you're not going to be like brand new reviews for <laughs> Drop Dead Gorgeous all of a sudden. So you have to factor in the cultural climate, unfortunately. You have to factor in a lot of things to factor in percentages. Also, <laughs> yeah, putting just like giving a number to something is very difficult. Like at least when I was having to pick numbers for my reviews, I was like, I think it's this. And then my, my editor was like, oh, just so you know, like this is kind of the scale we use. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, maybe I want to change my mind. Mm -hmm. Yes. My least favorite thing about being a, a professional TV critic is grading things. I hate it. I feel like if my review should be enough to let you know how I feel about something and whether or not it's worth your time. And then when I have to quantitate it that way, it makes me furious. <laughs> so how do you think the era of kind of binge watching and hyper serialization has affected your job as a reviewer? Can you judge a serialized show based on its parts? And also, is there any difference between your experience of watching something week to week rather than binging a whole thing at once and how you think about it? I think you can um, review a serialized show based on just like its parts because at the same time, there's one part of the whole is going to be better than another part of the whole. That's just a fact. Like your your pilot usually is one of your weakest episodes. There are great pilots, but they're still not the show fully formed. As you go on, you're, you're going to get more things that actually work for the show. I'm pro binge watching. I know a lot of people aren't, but that's also because like just part of the way I always watch TV anyway was a, a lot of binge watching. 
I think it's one of those things that is atypical for audiences, though. That like when I was doing that years ago, before people were paying me to talk about TV, like I knew that wasn't normal. I was just like watching huge globs of TV at a time, and that's because I was a weirdo. And now apparently it's the norm, which is I understand uh, resistance from critics. I understand uh, fatigue from audiences too. What I like about binge watching versus week to week is that I feel like I can see more like themes or like long term. You can see the strands better apart opposed to just like episode by episode. And you're like, this is ridiculous, which I think, you know, episodes are also meant to kind of be seen that way. So if something is ridiculous in an episode, it's still not necessarily great. But when you're able to look at the bigger picture, for me, that's a lot easier to see where things are going and the themes. And that's it's easier for me to talk about stuff in that way, opposed to just reacting to like some ridiculous scene that I don't that I just think is stupid. <laughs> also, let's be honest, I feel like any network resistance to serialization is just that they can't get away with the the garbage of airing episodes out of order anymore, which has always been a terrible <laughs> practice and I will ra- rage against that forever. Preach. RIP Farfly. RIP Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that show. <laughs> Very upset it's gone. I'm still still really upset. They aired that so wildly out of order to the point where season two had a bunch of season one episodes just scattered in between. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Fox. That was ABC. We can cut that joke and post. That's all good, guys. That's all good, guys. <laughs> How do you decide how granular you go with your reviews in terms of those serialized shows? So, for example, I know that AV Club sometimes only reviews uh, Netflix shows as a whole, and sometimes they'll both do a, an entire season review as well as do a week by week sort of episode by episode basis. Well, for a case for AV Club, we have like our pre-air reviews, which are like the entire season or as many episodes of the season that we have, and then we have the weekly ones. Um, for the Netflix shows, they've done. A certain thing where it's like, if you're a binge watcher, here, we have all the reviews here. And if you're going to be slow, then you can have those. Uh, I've only, the only Netflix show I've done so far is Glow. And they let me just do that uh, a piece a day. With that, like, I try my best not to watch all the episodes in a row, but then I, I'm a weak, weak human being. <laughs> so I do it anyway. But I always make sure to note, like, well, you can't talk about this here. And if it does help for something later in the season, I will maybe highlight it slightly, but I'm not going to be like, well, you better pay attention to this. Yeah, I won't do a, a verbal nudge in my writing. <laughs> yeah, I felt like um, the only one that I've done, like, the entire season at once was great news. And I did feel like... My feelings towards it were definitely shifted at the end. Like I, at the beginning, I was like, I'm skeptical. And then by the end, I was like, man, I love this. So I think it kind of, I mean, I was reviewing it as a season. So it wasn't, I didn't have to think of it episode by episode, but I did note kind of like how I shifted, like my feelings about it shifted throughout watching it and like kind of focusing on the main things that I thought were like overall for the season big themes or things that were either problems or like still, even though I loved it, still problems um, or, or things that were really like the heartwarming things that I think made the show like enjoyable. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to review great news, but I don't think I really had a major problem with it from the beginning. I, I cause like, and I was like, yes, finally the vehicle Briga Helan deserves. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I definitely knew it was the kind of show where people were like, well, it's not 30 rock and it's not Kimmy Schmidt. And wow, they, that's what they did. Um, <laughs> and by the end of the season, I'm like, well, if, if people aren't watching this, then 
That's to you, McGillicuddy. <laughs> that kind of brings me to my next point. There are so many shows these days that feel like they take four or five episodes to kind of get good. You know, even BoJack Horseman, which is so incredible. It took me really five episodes until I was like, I love this. So, you know, for those shows that have a bad first season or first half of a season, how do you kind of take that into account as a reviewer? Is there some way to see potential for a show to improve? So I've thought about this a lot, actually, especially when you rewatch a show after you've gone through those growing pains. The example I will use is The Vampire Diaries. Everyone says, like, by four or five, that's when we, like, really get into it, right? And I've rewatched the show numerous times, and it's one of those things where you have to tell people, oh, it gets better, blah, 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 blah. But when you're rewatching it, you realize, oh, no, this actually, it worked from the beginning. It's just the fact that you don't have the knowledge of the characters at the time. And that can be stressful because, like, you just want to be like, well, this is great. Uh, I can also use Buffy. I'm only going to use Vampire uh, examples now. <laughs> Season one is uh, is a low budget uh, mess, but at the same time, rewatching it, you're like, oh, well, this this makes sense because this happens in season five, or oh, oh, Willow, you're gay. <laughs> <laughs> um, isn't that like a bit of retcon in a sense? Because obviously, they didn't know that Willow was gay in the first season of Buffy. Well, yes, of course. <laughs> the actual one for Willow is like, oh, Willow, when you finally stop being timid, you're going to be a monster. That's the real one. <laughs> So you're saying that the viewing of those later it's, it's one of those, seasons influenced your perception of the initial episodes? It, yeah, it's one of those things. Not so much it influences, but you grow a deeper appreciation for those those so-called wobbly episodes. And especially if you didn't, maybe if you didn't watch it necessarily when it aired, and you're just like, oh, I have to get through this to get to that. And you go back, you're like, oh no, in theory, when this aired, this was actually a really great choice that they made. Because people don't want to go through growing pains of shows. That's that's the thing. It's not necessarily bad to be a growing pain. And I'll go back to the Vampire Diaries. The things they were doing were not necessarily bad. Um, there were a lot of comparisons to Twilight because, it's, honestly, that's how they saw it. They're like, it's, well, it's Twilight on TV, but like to themselves they were winking. That's not what we're doing at all. <laughs> so you, the pilot is very kind of Twilighty in a way. Just just even the way it was shot. Um, but from that point on. It's not that. There are signs it's not that, basically, from from the beginning. But you're not going to know that until you've you've watched it afterwards, basically. Yeah, I would say, um, I guess, the biggest the biggest hurdle I feel like shows have is that there's so many other shows available. And so some, trying to get someone to get through those first five, ep- like five episodes of an hour-long show is a lot of time. So trying to convince someone to get through that much to be like, oh, now, now I'm really into it is hard but that i mean that could be the point where reviews come in or where things come in where i'm like oh but my friends say this is really good or i read this review and i know it gets good later so i need to like keep going it took me so long to watch breaking bad because i was Mm. just like the first however many episodes i was just like not into it at all and i was like this is the slowest thing ever but (laughs) i i felt like i knew that if i could get past that i was like i know i can get past this Mm. You know, that's that that the biggest problem is that there's so many options and that trying to get people to make it to I mean, I don't think it's bad necessarily bad. Like you said, that shows take a while to get into because it is like they're figuring it out and you're trying to figure it out. It's like kind of all at the same time. So it's not a bad thing that they're that it's like that, but it's just trying to make the characters compelling enough, I feel like, to get through that point where you're you're like, Well, I don't know if I care about the show yet, but I really like that I really care about this character or this this plot line or this actor even, like just to get to like keep it above everything else that you have the option of watching. <laughs> Another thing about like that first five episodes thing, and again, I'll use Vampire Diaries, but it really it's a kind of a drama thing, is usually by that time, it's when the first big twist shows up. 
Um, I think uh, for Vampire Diaries, that's when they revealed that it's, it's not that just that she looked like uh, their ex-girlfriend, Catherine. Catherine was a vampire who turned them into vampires and is an evil monster. Um, sorry, spoilers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> spoilers from that show that aired how long ago? Spoilers from that show where you should only watch like the first two seasons, maybe, <laughs> if, if you want to continue to love it completely forever and just be like, this is the greatest show in the history of TV. But yeah, so you're like, well, it takes five episodes. Like, maybe I'll just start episode five. But no, because that t- they were building to that. So that, that's the thing, too, where it's like, it takes this many episodes to get there. It was like, but I want to get there, but you missed the buildup. It's why I always hate, again, we'll go back to Buffy. I hate when people said, oh, you can skip the first season. It's like, I mean, you could, but... You're, you're going to miss the building blocks, the foundation. The master. Yeah. Whenever people tell me that, that you can skip the first season of something or, like, the mm-hmm. first so many episodes, I'm like, no, I can't physically do that. And also, I agree. Like, I think that's all important, and there's a reason why it's included. Mm-hmm. And you can't also just, like, starting in the middle, like, you missed, like, even just the pilot tells you so much. Like, how can you do this? It stresses me out a lot. Yeah, it stresses me out. So there's been a lot of discussion recently in this era of hyper-serialization about what the meaning of a TV episode is, and especially going back uh, last year when the final season of Leftovers uh, was sent out to critics, uh, Lindelof famously wrote a letter asking the reviewers to only watch them in a specific way or on an episode-by-episode basis instead of just binging it in one sitting. Uh, what are your thoughts on what an episode of TV is? currently in this era of Netflix, but also still broadcast networks. Well, I never got those screeners, so I never got that email. So, you know. <laughs> well, my thing is, and I'm sure a lot of my fellow critics will agree, I hate when it's like, well, it's like watching a movie. It's like, well, we're, we're watching TV for a reason. Um, but at the same time, um, a thing that I always had in my mind for TV, I never really wrote about, but especially with uh, FX uh, circa... Sons of Anarchy uh, and uh, those like that era and Justified. Yeah, I was always like specifically in my mind, this is TV, but it's also it's kind of like reading a novel. It felt very much like the show, like it was various chapters of a book. That was always the comparison I I had. And I think it's a better comparison than the the, you're watching a film one, because a film is a very finite thing in a way television is. And that's why I love television so much. So I understand wanting people wanting to watch the show a certain way, but as long as you just never watch it like a movie, that's good with me. <laughs> yeah, I would say, uh, so for instance, The Americans, I watched, I binge watched like four seasons, or I don't know, maybe it wasn't four, three seasons. And then I started like to the point where I caught up and then like, I think it was the fourth season I started watching it live. And it was so like, it was it was a different experience and I kind of enjoyed the idea that I was having like to wait week by week and watch the episodes as if they were one thing and you have that time to think about it and really wonder and like speculate what's going to happen next. And you don't have that if you're watching everything. If you're like, if I watch, I watch Stranger Things all like really quickly and I didn't have time to start speculating what I thought could happen or have that moment where you can just decide like, oh, well, what if this happens or this could happen or I'm or like fan theories like in Game of Thrones. I wrote a lot about fan theories last season and it was if, if we weren't watching it week by week, I don't think that would have all that would it would have happened probably between seasons because there's so much time between seasons. But from week to week to be like, oh, well, this is how this impacts this fan theory. So let's go to this fan theory like that kind of thing wouldn't happen. And so to me, I, I think you should still look at them like I still like to look at it episode by episode just for that whole, like, I mean, they're, they are meant to be watched that way 
originally. And binge watching, I don't necessarily think keeps it from having the same impact, but it's definitely a different experience. I understand the argument when people say uh, that they it's hard to remember where a certain episode is with binge watching. It all blurs together. But at the same time, that's what, again, one of my pet peeves. If you're a critic and it's your job to do this, if it's blurring for you, that that's your problem, basically. Because I make sure to make my mental note of what something is. And now I've, everyone's coming for me. <laughs> <laughs> Put myself on a hit list. Well, I just think of like when I watch Stranger Things season two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they called it Stranger Things too. But it was, it was Stranger Things, season two. But they had that episode where it was like Eleven's all off by herself. And everyone was like making comments about that specific episode because it was kind of like, it was very obvious that that episode was kind of a standalone kind of thing. And so, I mean, for me, I was like, I liked that episode, but I also think I could have put it in different places in the season. And like to think of things like that, mm-hmm. to me, it was easier to, it doesn't all blur together so much as as it's more like, there's different pieces of the like ultimate plot that I'm I'm seeing things. Yeah, I just think it's a, it's a big matter of people not wanting to change the way they absorb things. A, a lot of the time when it's it's arguments against binge watching or the Netflix model. Again, like I said I was kind of I was binge watching before everyone was doing it, so that, that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm used to it. And again, I'm also someone who's not like I know nothing about Snapchat or anything like that. So in my own ways, I'm just an old curmudgeon. But especially if this is your profession with TV, you need to learn to evolve with the times. Otherwise, you're just being like the networks who won't evolve with the times. Right. We're kind of forced to binge watch at this point because if I want to write about Jessica Jones, I need to watch the entire thing so that I can like formulate my think piece on it because you know that other people have seen the whole thing. So I feel like if I were like, I feel the same way about tweeting kind of, if I t- wanted to tweet about Jessica Jones or something that the entire season's out, I feel weird about tweeting about it when I'm not done because it could be complete. I know that people have seen the end. So like they're, they're maybe like, well, this doesn't make sense. Like they figured this out in the end. And so, you know, I think it kind of forces you to binge watch. I don't have a problem with it. Although it, it does feel like a little bit of an extra pressure. Although one thing that people will never argue is that against is that Kristen Ritter and Rachel Taylor are the dream team, baby. So (laughs) a great cosign. So just taking a step back for a second, how exactly do you judge or critique a piece of television? Like, what are you looking for? Uh, I'm I'm looking for everything because I am just a weirdo who's obsessed with TV. Um, I'm looking at the acting, the writing story is is a really big thing for me. Just narrative consistency and logic. It depends for the show. Hannibal, it was a very ethereal show. I, yeah, Hannibal is a show I was able to review, and I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea how I did that. And that was one of my first writing things, too. I don't know how I survived, basically. <laughs> and I did a decent job writing about Hannibal, but it was probably one of those, it's one of those shows you can't approach the same way you approach any other show. But for any other show... <laughs> Um, yeah, it's just writing, directing, and TV direct is not really a director's medium, but there are certain times where like just things stick out. Um, I'll bring up uh, Riverdale again. A a few episodes, they had an episode that was clearly an homage to like the mobster and heist genre. Um, they like had a Reservoir Dogs little moment too. And like, so these are these, these things you can point out. The Godfather, they did that too. It was just like, we're going to just hit all these things because that is a show that wears its inspirations heavily on its sleeve. So that's another thing you can, you can draw from. 
Um, I'll bring it to like a, a, a show that you wouldn't think about uh, criticism for. Let's say NCIS. That show has been going on for a million years. That show has a style. It's consistent. Nothing is changing. Um, but you can still criticize it based on whatever the case of the week is. You can criticize it based on if the characters are acting in character. I don't even know besides like the... There's like, Mark Hamill. Mark Harmon. 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 <laughs> Yeah, I was just thinking of a Jedi deity. Yeah, I'm, just, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think of who's actually still left on the show. Mark Harmon, Polly Perrette, but she's leaving the show. I, th- I think those might be like... I don't know. Yes, because I, I, I've don't. seen oh, too much NCIS. The, the Sasha Alexander days were my, my jam. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you still have that. Just make sure the characters, assuming you know who the characters are on the show at this point, are consistent. Um, yeah, like making decisions that those characters would make, I feel like is a big mm-hmm. thing. If, if you are someone who is well-versed in all of NCIS, and if there's a way to uh, discuss the episode based on a past episode, if had, there are 16 seasons in or something, <laughs> at this point, they're repeating some things. So if you can go back and remember that, that also helps. Um, just little things like, was the music in the scene good or very awkward? And yeah. why was this music happening? <laughs> TV is something I, I love dearly. I could talk about it forever. And the fact that I get to write about it, it's, it's a dream come true. Yeah, I feel like for me, like, especially when, because I reviewed a few pilots, it's more like, do I want to keep watching this show? And some of them I'm like, this is a good show, but I don't care. Like, I don't care enough to keep watching it. And some of them I'm right. like, wait, you know what? I'm interested. Like, where's this going next week? Like, maybe, maybe I will, you know, tune into it, like, personally. Like, that's what I like want to see if if at the end i'm like oh i want to see more of these characters then i i consider that to be you know a good like indication yeah like what you said about music and directing and all that stuff for for me like editing and all those things you shouldn't notice them and so like if i notice something if i'm like notice that the music's awkward in the scene that's bad if i don't notice the music or if i'm like i like this song Mm -hmm. like that's good Yeah. But if I notice that the music's weird, that's bad. If I notice that a shot was weird, that's bad. If I notice, I mean, I don't normally have acting problems with acting with acting because typically everyone's pretty good. You, you can there's sometimes like moments where they just have a weird line delivery. And you're like, wait, what was that about? Um, and you, like as a teenager, for example, uh, I, I was a big Smallville fan. So this was again way before I was blogging about anything, but. There was a one director on the show, Greg Beeman, who I always loved when he directed an episode of the show because his episodes literally looked like Smallville was a feature film. The one time you can be like, Stevie's a movie. Uh, <laughs> and I was, I don't get excited usually about directing on TV because it's, again, it's a writer's medium. But I, whenever he would direct an episode, it got me so excited. And just those little things were always something I kind of noticed. And that's why I do this because I'm a weirdo. Yeah. Here's a fun fact that I served him lunch while I was an assistant <laughs> on Falling Skies, Greg Beeman. So. Falling Skies, <laughs> Noah Wiley. Yes. yes. <laughs> Big ER fan right here. Um, well, for me, I read so I read a lot of stuff about, like, I read a lot of weird things for sci-fi fangirls, for instance. And this is maybe, it's good that people know this, but not. So I wrote about, like, the silk pajamas on Riverdale because, <laughs> like, honestly, That's nobody... Absurd. Well, from like I wrote it like like last I feel either either last season or early this season, and it's still like whenever I see soap pajamas, I like repost that, and I'm like still on here because um, there's <laughs> like stuff like that. that. There's stuff like that on Riverdale all the time, or on on shows where you're like, this is not realistic for teenagers. Like 
or this is and and some of that you just have to be like you know whatever it's a tv show i watched the oc and there was a lot of stuff on there that was not realistic for teenagers so i'm just gonna go with it but like it's just very poor like not poorly lit but there's a lot of like low light and i'm like is no one turning on lights here like there's stuff like that but i think this stuff's kind of fun it doesn't necessarily i mean i guess if there's too much of it or it all adds up then you're like okay this is the problem but for me i was just like oh everybody's wearing silk pajamas (laughs) (laughs) this is typical for teenagers right everybody this past week on riverdale veronica was wearing like these these like i think they were lime green i can't even remember because all i can think of is her terrible jalapeno margaritas um but she was wearing silk pajamas and i I screamed because (laughs) but yeah also I noticed, so it's not necessarily bad to notice yeah, things. Yeah. I noticed when a, a Latina on a show makes a spicy margaritas, which are the best thing in the world, and she makes them like these disgusting lime green. I'm like, oh no, this looks like some ecto-cooler situation. <laughs> How does a publication decide what is worth reviewing on a regular basis versus just kind of like a one-off thing? I just think they look at views. I think that's pretty much like when I whenever I've pitched something that like just in general pieces. And I say, oh, what about this? They'll Sometimes they would say, we don't get good, like this doesn't get good numbers. This doesn't do well for us. So then I would just be like, okay, well, I'm not going to pitch that show anymore. <laughs> I'm just going to say clicks. <laughs> it's very upsetting, but we're not here to rant. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> well, I don't fun. think, I think maybe it's clicks in a, in a certain way. But for instance, like I write for Sci-Fi Wire if it's like a major sci-fi show, like I think they're going to do, they're going to keep keep writing about it, even if the clicks aren't like, I mean, I think it's important, but also if they want to write about Star Trek Discovery, they're, they're going to keep publishing stuff about Star Trek Discovery. And it, it does, I don't think like if one interview does bad or one review does bad, they're going to be like, never mind, we're not going to talk about this like hugely important genre show. Yeah. The reason there are a million articles about Game of Thrones and Walking Dead, despite the fact we don't need that many articles. Yeah. Read that many articles. That's why I wrote like 8,000 Game of Thrones uh, articles about fan theories. She's the 8,000 of the 1 million. <laughs> That's so, my fault. I'm sorry. Uh, as writers, what is your interaction and dynamic like with your editor? Keep up the good work. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have really good experiences with my editors, mostly. I, don't, I, I also work with like pretty much all female editors, except for a couple. Yeah, I think most of my like consistent editors are all females, which is nice. For me personally. And um, so I think my experience is probably just judged by like judging by other things I've read from other people. It's probably very different than the standard person who probably deals with a lot of because, you know, it's still like a male dominated industry in a lot of ways. So my normal experience as my editor are, you know, I pitch something. We have like various different ways, whether it's like Trello or email or something like that, depending on like all of the everybody has their own way they want things done, which is fun, too. And then, like, sometimes I'll get notes back or sometimes, I mean, I'd say in general, I don't really get that many notes back on stuff. Like, occasionally I'll have a thing here and there where they're like, oh, we want notes back on this. But most of the time, I don't get notes back because I've written for a lot of places for a while. So I think once you kind of know what they're looking for, it's a lot easier. Yeah, I have a pretty good balance of male and female editors and... I always feel kind of weird when, you know, people are talking, especially on social media about editors and like their problems. I'm like I've had pretty decent experiences, especially it's considering I'm a black female. It's actually very amazing that I've had really good editor experiences. And even like an editor I had before, I had a friend who's also like worked for, for him and like had an awful experience. And I'm just like, I never, I didn't even know about that. I had, I had nothing similar to that at all. 
but like he had like a really, really bad experience. So I, I guess I'm lucky in that way, but it's not the norm as far as I know. Yeah. I, I also know a lot of my editors personally, like at this point, you're like, wow, we email every day or like we talk all the time. So I feel like it's kind of, it's pretty informal. I think if I, I think if I pitched like someone I've never talked to before, it would be a completely different interaction and relationship. But I, but most of the places I write for, I've been writing for for a while where it's consistent. And so I have a different kind of relationship with them. And I know people who've like had horror stories where like they wrote a piece and like the editor completely butchered it to the point where like it's, it's not their piece and like they wanted their name taken off of it. So yeah, it, it can be a disaster, but I, I've been fine. <laughs> yeah. Like I have, I have some editors that have like added in stuff that's, they're like, I hope you don't mind. I added in this great and this thing. And I'm like, no, that's great. Like I love it. I'm a fan. Like good yeah. work. <laughs> and do they choose the headlines and stuff that it goes out as? Um, for my reviews, no. Only one time my, re- <laughs> my headline was changed. And that's when they dropped my wrestling coverage on AV club. And my original headline was like, like Michelle Branch to Buffy's uh, logical thinking. Uh, AV club says goodbye to you. WB coverage. <laughs> <laughs> And I made sure to take a screen cap because it was the best headline I ever wrote. They changed it, but I know. Um, it's kind of a, I feel like it's, it's kind of a mix. I've gotten tweets about headlines before where people are like, this was a terrible headline. And I'm like, well, one, I didn't come up with it. But I don't ever say that because I don't think that's the point. <laughs> but, but sometimes, I mean, I kind of – I feel like I have a general idea of what they want for headlines now. But for some of them, they would always give me a headline, and that's really nice because I don't like the additional brain work of coming up with a headline. <laughs> In addition to, like, tweets, like the Twitter content, like – I don't know if you have to write, like, the tweet, any kind of, like, tweet content or Facebook content or, like, summaries or SEO. Like, I had to do so much additional things if they can just give me I the headline. I hate doing that. Yeah, if they just give me the headline, I'm totally fine with it. <laughs> I don't have to, like, try to come up with some clever way to be, like – like a quiet place, people got loud about a quiet place. <laughs> 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 Which is essentially what I did last night. <laughs> wow! But I was like, how many times can I say make jokes about people getting loud about a quiet place? <laughs> I did it like three times. <laughs> All the puns. Uh, so, as a critic, you're kind of at the forefront of the qualitative or reactive discussion about a show, and you can sometimes help shape or define or even go against the perception of a piece of content. Uh, how do you handle the, the conversation with fans or people who read your piece or people who watch the show, either on social media or in the comments section? Uh, I was saying earlier, basically, I've been very lucky enough, especially on the AV Club, um, to have really great commenters for like everything I write. For the most part, uh, I- I'm able to communicate with them. If we don't agree, we can discuss it or like it's a respectful disagree. I, I know my colleagues, uh, especially women of color, have not been so lucky but again, that also helps that I'm not like doing the really big shows. If I were, they would definitely hate me because I'm not going to go easy on them. <laughs> it's always weird because I, I feel like I'm always the one person who says, well, I, I like comments because again, I've, I've gotten decent comments. Like the rare time I got like a really, really bad comment. Uh, it was when I started writing for Zap to it, may it rest in peace. My first piece, the first comment was assuming that the white female editor just created a black person name to use. <laughs> Thought I was a fake person. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It also helps that um, a lot of the times, or not a lot of times, but a good portion of the time, people who are working the shows review, I'm reviewing, whether it's like good or like negative, slightly criticism. I'm, I'm, I'm not going all in on a show unless it's like really rough. They, they kind of respect my reviews to the point where it's like, hey, you can be cool to this reviewer. You don't get, don't get upset. So it's, 
oh, I've had a lot of people helping me get respectful commentary. This is not the norm. <laughs> I, I, I'm a snowflake, basically. Um, <laughs> yes, my editor experience and my commentary experience has not been the norm. Heather, how about you? Since I write for uh, Fangirls, which is the, the female vertical on the Sci-Fi Wire site, we get interesting comments. <laughs> um, they're not all they're not all bad, and some of them like I actually I actually really like I feel like my instinct is to just be like oh these bros with their comments, but it's not necessarily helpful to do that. So I try one I try not to read comments. I used to read comments on Geek and Sundry all the time when I first started writing stuff, and the comments were always like why didn't you include Firefly? Why didn't you include Firefly? There was like every list that Firefly wasn't on there. They were really upset. So I think it's kind of like I don't I know where to look at comments and where not to. So on Smart Girls stuff, everybody leaves really nice comments, so I always read them because it's just kind of like empowering and makes me feel better because they're like, oh, this story like made me change how I looked at something or whatever. So I like to read those. Uh, when people come to Twitter specifically to tell me about a headline they didn't like or something else, I'm typically not a fan because I'm like, you made all this effort to specifically come here where you know I'd see it instead of the comment section where I just don't read normally. Somebody said something on one of my things that I thought was really funny because I wrote this like silly, like I said, I wrote really silly ones. And one of them was about that show Dark, which is the German sci-fi show. I don't know if anyone's watched it. It's really yeah. good. And Netflix. nobody, everybody walks around in the rain. They don't use umbrellas. And so I wrote a thing about it. And <laughs> somebody was like, uh, like, I made it so it was like at the end, I was like, fight the resistance, like <laughs> the anti-umbrella contingency, <laughs> something stupid. And somebody was like, it was great until you had to make it political. <laughs> what? <laughs> so you get like weird comments like that where I'm like, okay, but I don't get a lot of personal attacks, which is nice. Like it, that, you know, I think there are people who get the personal attacks, but I try to not be really reactionary to comments because one time somebody sent me a comment and it was like a screenshot and he was like, I really liked your article, but this part was confusing. Like he thought it, he thought I had meant something else about like a Marvel movie. And I was like, no, I knew like, I wasn't talking about that movie. I was talking about this, but he did it and like, and he was like, oh, I must've just misread it. Like he was very nice. And I was like, you know, if I had, my instinct was to get real pissed at this dude who was like <laughs> coming at me in the comment at like, on Twitter, but he ended up being like a really good interaction. So I try to have like a little bit of benefit of the doubt, unless they're coming at me with like, this is the worst thing I've ever read. And then I just don't. <laughs> the one time I ever had like a really bad interaction, it wasn't even in the comments and it wasn't even like based on anything I wrote, uh, just a couple of years ago, this isn't even, the problem isn't comments. It's just Twitter in general, basically is what I'm complaining about now. Um, I was harassed for like six months on Twitter to the point I had to lock my account a couple of years ago just because I, I was a woman who dared write about wrestling. So that, that was fun. And it didn't end until one of my white friends got involved in the being harassed. And that's when it ended. So, oh, wow. yeah. Yeah, I would say that we have we do have um, we have people that moderate our comments as far as like if something's just like not necessarily if someone makes a bad comment, it's not deleted. But if somebody makes a comment that's like clearly not trying to have a conversation, they're just like ragging on something then they get deleted so like we're pr it's pretty good and and like the places i write for either mm -hmm. either the comments sections aren't big mm -hmm. or or they're kind of like monitored a bit yes uh, the one time i wrote for ign though the commenters did not like me they did not like my suggestion that uh quentin lance join legends of tomorrow to <laughs> so he could be the, the the doting father on his daughter <laughs> who sleeps with everyone every single episode <laughs> 
Um, yeah, IGN has a big comment section, and that's I, I it honestly kind of scares me. And I tried not to read comments on the stuff I wrote for IGN just because I was I was a little bit overwhelmed mm-hmm. by it, and I was and I was kind of like, you know what, I moved on. I said my piece. Like mm-hmm. this article says what it says. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah, the uh, the show I'm writing on right now premiered a couple of weeks back, and so uh, there were a lot of people tweeting at the creator of it, and you know, obviously some people didn't like it, and they were like, oh, one of the guys tweeted him, he's like, oh, this show sucks, it's the worst, you suck, blah 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 blah. And he like replied back to it on Twitter, like, oh, hey, thanks. I really appreciate your thoughts. Like, we want to take everything on, positive and negative. Like, thanks for taking the time. And this guy was like, oh, now I feel really bad. You know what? <laughs> I think I think I'm going to give it a chance. He was just yeah. like, it's like, like that I kind think, of interaction. I think yeah. people just assume either that you're getting a lot of tweets or like that you don't see things. I don't know, because I've noticed that before with like people tweeting at celebrities or people who have big followings. And then if the person responds back, they're like, oh, crap, like, mm. You're, I, I didn't know you'd see this. Love you. And like, <laughs> it's real weird. And I'm like, well, I don't feel like I have enough followers where that's a problem. So you should just assume I'm going to see anything that you tweet at me. So like, don't, don't say anything. I, I mean, in general, I don't like to say anything <laughs> mean, mean at people. <laughs> if I say something mean, I don't tag anyone. Like, that's kind of my general oh, rule. Is that I just well I'll say their name but I'm not gonna like put their their Twitter handle. Oh yeah, like, if I didn't name like, drop them. If that. I didn't like a show, I will say I'll say that I didn't like it. But normally I try to come up with some sort of like constructive part about it rather than just like I hate this. Like why? Like what I show? What show? I don't think that that's like. <laughs> I don't think that's helpful to anybody, really. Well, I mean, people fantasy fantasy search so they can still find out what you're doing and how much you hate them, basically. Yeah, well, I, I don't hate anyone. So uh, as reviewers, do you feel any sense of responsibility or duty to either the creatives or the audience? Is there some sort of like journalistic or moral or ethical guidelines you follow? I have no morals whatsoever. Um, <laughs> well, I know since becoming like a professional uh, critic, I don't I, I don't do as much snarky live tweeting as I used to, and I've I've been I've become less of a jerk, which is I lost my edge, Jesus. Um, but yeah, I try not to make it. I, I, so many shows I love, I just have to like I have to look at them professionally now. Basically, I can't look at them as personally as I did before. That's a thing. But yeah, again, especially just less jerky, snarky live tweeting. That's why I have to like live tweet Disney Channel original movies from the year two thousand now because I have nothing else to do. I would say it's more like I try to be honest, but not. You don't need to be overly mean. Like you can be like, I didn't think this worked, <laughs> but it. I don't need to like personally attack anyone or or really i mean i haven't watched that many things that i just like i don't really watch i haven't watched anything that i absolutely hated or felt like had no value at all so i think if maybe i if i if i ran into that who knows what i would say (laughs) but i think of things like the x-files which i is like one of my favorite things ever and to have like i can acknowledge that there are some terrible, terrible, terrible episodes <laughs> and problems. And like to be, I think you have to, when you like something, even when you like something, you have to acknowledge the problems it has, like the whole problematic faves. I mean, that's the, like we have an entire like thing where we just, people write about their problematic faves and you're like, I love the show, but here's all these things that are wrong with it. Like this didn't work, this didn't work. And so I think you have to have that balance and, you know, even when you love something. And ultimately, if you're watching so much of it, you're probably going to end up having either like a really strong connection to it or I don't know. I, I end up finding things I like about almost everything I watch. So I don't have like a huge problem with trying to find something nice to say in addition to here's all the problems, but here's things you did well. You mentioned that you're now writing some shows less snarkily or the reviewing them less snarkily because you're approaching them more critically than personally. Uh, could you define what that means 
more? Is it a question of style? Is it a question of content? Well, I, I never brought like the snark into my actual reviews. It's it more a matter of just on social media specifically, like live tweets, as I was saying. I'm not just going to, because I, I, I'm a jerk. <laughs> so I said some really rude things, especially snark wise for shows that aren't good. I, I, I do a lot not to just talk about things I don't like anymore. That, that's probably me maturing, honestly, because again, a lot of this was before was my early 20s, my teens. So I, I've matured to the point where it's like, if I don't like something, I'm just not going to bring it up. I'm not going to talk about it. I see a lot of people complain. It's like, well, this, they're always talking about this. Like, just ignore it. That's what I do. It's, I, I found that, but I, when it comes to, as a, as a paid TV critic, I always approach things professionally, basically. It was never a matter of, well, I have to stop talking about something like this way. Yeah. Right. So reconciling the difference between being a fan and being mm-hmm. a critic, perhaps. Yes. Which, yeah. uh, it's not, I don't think it's hard, but it's uh, when I see you know comments from fans and viewers, it's just amazing how little they think about how you have to do that. I think that for me, thinking about, I mean, it is a little bit like I have. I feel like we have a different perspective because I a lot of my friends work on TV shows or 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 like are writing TV shows or are very involved, and I hear about all the like different struggles they have and the different things that go on behind the scenes. And so I don't know if I like completely separate that from when I, when I look at something critically, just knowing like in general on shows, knowing that there's a lot of things that go into everything, but like ultimately I have to think of, well, somebody doesn't know what all of this yeah. is happening. And like, are they going to enjoy this? Is this something like that they want to make time for in their day? And that's kind of how I have to like separate it in my mind. <laughs> or yeah, if I'm praising a show that my friend's on, am I doing it just because they're my friend? Which n- No, because I'm a professional, but I kind of always want to make sure the balance is there where I'm not overly praising it. Or luckily I have not had to write about a show where like I personally know the behind the scenes drama, like if, for why someone like left a show or, or in my mind, I'm just like, I want to scream it. I can't scream it. <laughs> It's a weird situation, which not every TV critic has, obviously, especially because not every TV critic lives in Los Angeles. Right. What are some common misconceptions that people have about critics or criticism? I feel like we touched on that one earlier where they think that critics want to not like something, especially with like movies, you know, the DC Marvel thing where people assume or like critics are getting paid to like something, which I also think is an interesting theory. (laughs) I wish. Yeah, I wish. (laughs) I was like, um, I don't really think I get like, I, I feel like there's just that misconception that that's all going to change your opinion. Of course, I, I can like look at things critically and say, you know, I really liked talking to this person, but this show I didn't like as much or something. You can definitely like you can separate them. And I, I think people think you can't or that like, oh, they invite you to this party. So you're definitely gonna like be you're, you're definitely gonna be more loyal to them. And it's just not the case. Again, because they're thinking, especially as a fan, they think, well, you can't possibly separate it. But it's like, no, this is our profession to separate it. And I I know there are some people who do this professionally who don't separate it. And they kind of get a little too into the, well, these people like me now. So, but that's not the norm. Do you feel there's anyone innovating currently in sort of the criticism medium? Any experimental critics or budding uh, sepin walls besides the two that we have? Here today? <laughs> well, I thought what I thought was interesting is like when Nick first was like, "We're going to talk about criticism." I'm like, "How much criticism do I really do?" But when you think about the like all the different ways you can do criticism, to me that's very 
interesting to think of like, okay, so people are doing think pieces. It doesn't just mean you're doing reviews or recaps. And that's kind of like, that's interesting to me to think of like, oh, well, and when I'm, when I'm writing that stupid thing about umbrellas, like, (laughs) or I'm writing about silk pajamas, like I'm still like kind of criticizing this, you know, I'm still like, like doing commentary or having some sort of like opinion or reading into different things. So I think to me, that's really interesting if people can find different ways to like, to do that kind of stuff where you're not necessarily just doing like a straight up review or a recap or whatever, but you're, you're finding like new ways to talk about something. To me, those are really interesting. And not just because I do that, but because I didn't think of it as even like criticism <laughs> until, <laughs> until this moment. Well, on that note, how do you distinguish yourself in the myriad of think pieces that are published online besides talking about pajamas? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I think that the the way that any writer distinguishes themselves is their opinion, the way they look at something, because nobody's going to look at something the exact same way. So if you are looking at something and you're like, wow, they just like all I thought about when I watched Dark is how they didn't have umbrellas. Like maybe not everybody's thinking that, but some people are because as soon as I brought it up, other people were like, I noticed that, too. So I think <laughs> I think you're you just have to go with kind of your like what you think of or what 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 like stands out to you instead of trying to think of how other people would react to something or or just trying to fit into the mold of what someone else is doing. And also, you know, every outlet has their own voice and like that kind of thing. So finding the ones that fit right for you, I think is important. But sometimes it's bad to stick out. Like when you say, <laughs> move over Tyler Perry in a review for Girls Trip. <laughs> That's the thing that happens. That's something, oh, wow. Yes, there, there's a, a bad way to stick out. Uh, but well, yeah, if you like something and no one else does, maybe that's not great. <laughs> I'm the only one that's right ever. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the day, why is TV criticism useful? And what do you think writers can learn from TV criticism? Why aren't we obsolete? <laughs> <laughs> Because the more TV, the more you want to know. Again, I was saying before, you just kind of want like the vindication, the verification that like the ideas you have are right, or that just people saying things other than what you were thinking. You want to know that there's more to what you're just watching. Because people can be like, "Oh, I don't own a TV. TV's mindless," but you're you're the mindless one. <laughs> I don't. I don't read books. What is this thing? I don't. Books are mindless. Yeah, books are mindless. <laughs> I think it impacts everybody so much like the world and how people see things and like you know especially i like to support and i'm i'm sure latoya does too but you know different view viewpoints on tv like seeing different different creators but also different stories being told and those can actually impact the world and to me you know impact people's views of things and so when i think of criticism i think of also like holding people accountable and hold and when when something's not right also saying like that's not you know that's sexist or that's racist or that's you know whatever you shouldn't be saying stuff like that those are all important conversations that need to be had and so it's a little bit of like holding accountable and also drawing attention to things that are good versus things that maybe we should just ignore and so i think that's important as far as what writers can learn from it i do think it's like what kind of stories people like to see and different kinds of unique ways to tell it and what, I mean, just looking at when, like, for instance, people writing pilots, looking at what's working and what's not working can help a lot. And it's kind of like, if, if you read a review on a pilot, you're, you're able to get those notes on what's working and what's not for, not for like exactly for your, your own work, but in general, if you see the same notes on different kinds of things, you can, you can, I would assume transfer that in some way to like your own work. 
with events like the TCAs and even social media, uh, connecting TV critics and creatives on a continuous basis, uh, what do you feel that relationship should be between those who consume the content and those who create it? Best friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you believe there should be like some kind of distance or like creators, guidelines? Like creators and fans or creators and critics? Uh, critics and creators or okay. writers. I think it's, it's weird for us because we live in LA and we're just friends with writers and a lot of those writers yeah. are also the creatives on these shows too. It's, it's different, you know. It's going to affect your work as a critic to the point where you are giving them a pass, basically. That's obviously problematic. As opposed, when it comes to creatives and critics, though, if it affects their work, none of your critics write, though, so, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it can be bad in either way, but it just balance. That's always the key, right? I think in my life and probably in, in your life as well, it's impossible not to be friends with creators or know people that are creating things that you're probably going to ultimately watch. If you go and interview the same people 20 times that you're not going to have built up some sort of rapport with people or or if you're watching their show consistently and they are reading your views, like clearly you're going to have some sort of relationship, like whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But I don't think they need to be like completely apart or separate. And just in terms of the lifestyle of being a freelance writer, like what is that like? (laughs) I'm so tired. (laughs) (laughs) I think... (laughs) So, so one thing, my, my mom came to visit me and she was like, I, she said this thing and I was like, mom, you actually just summed up my entire life because she was like, she's like overworking on something in the kitchen and I'm sitting on the couch writing on the computer and she's like, I can't tell when you're working and when you're not. And I said, you know what? I think that's my entire life. I can't tell when I'm working and when I'm not. It's, it's like a constant, like everything I'm doing, if I'm watching something, I'm thinking about what I could write about it. If I'm, if I'm writing, then I'm focusing on that. My friends sometimes also will be like, you have such a glamorous life. And I'm like, no. Like, it seems really... (laughs) I'm like, yes, okay, it was glamorous yesterday when I was at this press conference, but it's not glamorous today when I'm... Like, most other days, I'm just sitting on my couch in my pajamas all day. And I don't... (laughs) Like, I think people do think... I mean, part of that's social media, because we share things, and you just see, like, oh, look, I got this, like, great box of... I got, like, a really cool Amazon Fire TV from... Um, Hulu. That was nice. But like just random stuff. Like, but free also, stuff, yay. Free stuff, yes. But also most of the time it's not that. Most of the time you're just sitting at home by yourself trying to like make yourself right when you're like doing wanting to be doing other things. Yeah, we, we're both critics who work from home. So I, I'm aware of the just being in your pajamas all day and trying to work. Silk pajamas? I wish. <laughs> I, I don't make silk pajamas money as a freelance TV critic. That's, that's, that's also part of the lack of glamour in, in this life. Yeah, it's... It's a, it's a weird life, isn't it? Yeah. And you're like always piecing, I mean, money-wise, you have to piece everything together. It's not like a consistent paycheck. And a lot of time goes into invoicing very non-sexy, glamorous things. 1099s. Yeah, 1099s, invoicing whether or not I can write this coffee date off, like all, you know, all kinds of those things. It's very, it's actually like very normal. It's like a very normal job in a lot of ways when people think it's not. You're just like, well, I got to do all the same things you got to do, but except I have to motivate myself to get out of bed. Which Tesla model should I buy today? <laughs> Everyone thinks you're Rory Gilmore, but you're not because you're a better journalist than her. Ooh. <laughs> 
so before we go, what are your own personal favorite TV shows, both now and of all time? Right now? Um, I don't even know if I'm watching anything that's currently on. <laughs> other than, I'm like, what if I watch? I like, Great. It's so hard for me to think other can we, than... Can we retroactively delete this episode? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't um, watch TV. TV. <laughs> I don't watch TV. Uh, I watch... I just feel like I watch a lot of things that are like not airing right now is what I meant. Like uh, Grace and Frankie. <laughs> I'm like season one of Grace and Frankie. I'm right there. Um, ER on Hulu just got dropped. So big fan of that. I, uh, I, I'm really into true crime stuff. So any kind of like criminal shows really into the West Wing. I'm a big Aaron Sorkin fan. Everything Aaron Sorkin's ever written right now. A lot. I mean, I've been watching the X-Files obviously because it's airing right now and Riverdale. Those are kind of the two I... I'm really good about keeping up with um, that are currently airing everything else. I mean, Jessica Jones just came out. I haven't started binge watching it yet, but that I started it last night. I'm really really excited. I'm really excited about it because that was always my favorite, like of the Marvel Netflix shows. Still the best one. Yeah. So I do a lot of random, like I'm really into this actor. So I'm going to watch all of the things I watched that the, um, the Amazon show, the electric, Whatever one that is. Electric Dreams. Uh, yes. Philip K. Dick. Yes. Anthology. Really, I really liked that. I really liked all the ones I watched of that. So that's my, I think that's the most recent thing. I guess I'll say Jessica Jones, even though I've only like watched the first two of these seasons so far. But as someone who's been pro Kristen Ritter and Rachel Taylor for so long, and poor Rachel Taylor with all her canceled one season shows, Charlie's <laughs> Angels reboot for life. <laughs> uh, I, I, it always makes me happy to see her getting the, the show she deserves, that basically. Spooky Haunted Hotel one. Uh, the guy from Lost. Uh, uh, oh, yes. Yeah. 666 six, 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 Park Avenue. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I watched that one. I really liked that one because that guy from Brothers and Sisters was on it. Dave Annabelle was yeah. there. Uh, well, I'll talk about Dave Annabelle off mic. <laughs> It's, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Don't worry. Um, uh, but that Charlie's Angels reboot. If you ever want to watch Rachel T- Taylor just like quip up a storm and be the only one who understands what show she's in, watch that show. <laughs> Shout out to Javi. I mean, yeah, good stuff. He probably was responsible for all those quips being as good as they were. Uh, 666 Park Avenue did not have those quips. That's, that was the problem. <laughs> That's why it failed. That was definitely the problem. That was definitely the problem. Um, also, that Robert Buckley had to play a nerd. That, that was <laughs> hard like i i've interviewed him and i just stared in his eyes basically the whole time I was speaking like, wow. of uh i zombie i'm a big cw fan in general i watch yes, all the, the cw dc shows but the best one is legends of tomorrow uh, because that's just a bunch of like stupid idiots time traveling and acknowledging that they're stupid idiots yeah there's literally been watching supergirl like i'm not caught up but i that was one that i i've been watching it's number two after legends of tomorrow i'll give it that and i zombie i've been catching yeah. on too i will say my one of my favorite parts of legends of tomorrow recently was when sarah lance is in a coma the whole episode and she wakes up and it's like it's thanksgiving basically and she throws a knife at a pie and everyone just looks at her like oh sarah like it's a stupid sitcom and they're like oh classic sarah just throwing knives at pies and it's that's how perfect the show is it's, it's just it's so fun it can make that actually work and i feel like that was one that took a while to yes. get like off it like to you get can skip the first season yeah like, <laughs> you can actually I skip that first season i wasn't going to say that but you should watch the first season just for like uh, Wentworth Miller, like just being Wentworth Miller on the show. Then. It up. Yeah, you don't actually have to watch for the story because the story is not good in the first season. But <laughs> watch it for like fun things like that. I just watched the Australian version of the slap. Yes. Oh yeah, that's actually pretty good. Or okay. better than so the NBC it. version. 
the Australian version of the slap, I watched it when it first came out, and I'm like, this show is phenomenal. And when it got announced for American remake, I was so excited, especially with the cast. And then the American remake happened, and I was furious. I never watched the American one. You don't need to. Right, exactly. That's fine. It's a waste of that cast, honestly. But yes, the Australian version of the slap is one of my favorite things in the entire world. It is so good. Watch it. Be- because it's it's great. It's on Hulu. Just so it's finally on Hulu. Yeah, it is on Hulu. I watched it the other day. So. I at the time. I so I saw uh, like just I was I was downloading. <laughs> I saw the description. I'm like, well, this sounds ridiculous. And I watched it. I'm like, oh no, this is phenomenal. It was. It's amazing. And I told everyone I knew about it. That's what I meant when I said I was watching things that aren't on right now. Yes. Thank <laughs> you for the, thank you for alerting show. people. Because you know, okay. I love Essie Davis, yeah. which yeah. I was also watching Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Yeah. Which is I will relay right. that to Australians for you. Yes. Well, well, features, all the Australians, I love. Jesse Davis, and we love the slap. <laughs> it features Jonathan LaPaglia from Seven Days, and uh, now the host of Survivor Australia. No one says the brother of Anthony LaPaglia. You're just like, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the attractive brother of Anthony LaPaglia. Clearly. Uh, uh, what is your favorite gif, especially a Scully gif? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Putting I mean, you on the spot on the I gif like question. The, I, I mean, I have a lot of favorite Scully gifts. I like the one where she's holding up her badge and somebody put in the, like, I don't care. Because I just feel like it's very accurate. There's also one that's, like, Jillian Anderson, and she's just, like, smoking. And she says, like, effing asshole. And I just use that one a lot on, like, political things because it's just, like, really badass. Nice. Really badass stuff. She wrote a lot of good eye rolls for Scully gifts for sure. I mean, I don't really use a lot of gifts, but I'll just go with uh, Marsha Brady, very, very sequel, Sherjan. Yeah, that yeah. one also, I've used that one recently also. <laughs> very good. Do you guys have any resources, be it for spying TV critics or other TV critics or even TV writers that you would like to share? Be it books, websites, apps, gifts. Gifts. I mean, just IMDb, Wikipedia, and you can always ask me questions on social media. Honestly, I'm an open book, really. I don't have any secrets, really. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't. I think just read a lot. That's what I try to do. I try to read a lot of other people's pieces all the time and like make. I actually this year really want to like have been trying to make a point to go and like kind of set aside a lot of links that I see on Twitter and make sure I read them because I think, well, one reading makes you a better writer in general and just seeing what other people are saying about stuff is, is good. So I think just reading, mm-hmm. reading things on the internet yeah, and, and anything, Wikipedia accounts, <laughs> know what's going on in the TV criticism world. And also just in TV, I'm sure we all have our specific things we love in TV, but like just keep an open mind. And again, it's always very important to me to at least know what's going on on a show, even if I don't watch it. Like just be aware of what's happening in television. Yeah, one thing I, I didn't mention was The Good Place, which is a show I really like. And it's doing yes. like very different, very different, interesting things on TV. So I think if you hear that there are shows doing stuff that are, you know, unique or, or different, those are definitely things to especially look out for because you can learn a lot from from something that's, you know, clearly like rising above or going a different direction. I support The Good Place, obviously. I also support Suit Season 8 when it finally airs, because we need to support Katherine Heigl on television. It needs to happen. But do we, though? Yes. Support Grey's Anatomy Season 14 when it airs. Also, her CBS show Doubt shouldn't have gotten canceled. It wasn't a bad show. <laughs> and on that note, yeah. <laughs> so on that note, uh, that's all the time we have. So we want to thank our listeners for taking the time to tune in and our very special guests for showing up and sharing their thoughts with us. You can get all the show notes for this episode. I think it's going to be a very long page of show notes at paperteam.co slash 81. If you want to leave us a review, we would love that. And you can do it at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all those reviews will help more people find our show and listen like you. 
As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And what are your Twitters? I'm at Lafergs, L-A-F-E-R-G-S. I'm at Nerd Heather on all of social medias. If you have any thoughts, feedback, opinions, or questions uh, for this episode or any other episode, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we will be talking about pitch documents. And whether you're going out to a meeting or sending something to a competition, we'll be talking about what you should include and emphasize in that document. All right, we'll see you then. See ya.